Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. We've all heard about the negative ways the clothing industry is impacting our planet, but there are companies looking to change that. My guest today, Hallie Borenstein, CEO of Reformation, likes to say that, this is, might be my new favorite quote, being naked is the number one most sustainable option. We're number two. Reformation is a revolutionary lifestyle brand that proves fashion and sustainability can coexist. The company began by selling vintage clothing out of a small Los Angeles storefront in 2009. They've since grown significantly into an internationally recognized brand known for apparel that celebrates the feminine figure and as a pioneer of sustainable fashion practices, focusing on people and progress each step of the way. Hallie, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. That was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I was hoping you'd be like, this is my dream come true. I'm on brand on purpose. I mean, anyone who can talk about being naked in their introduction, I'm just happy to hear you say that. I love that quote. I love it. When I saw that, I'm like, that has to be in the intro. It's so funny. I know. It's very defining of who we are, both from a brand perspective and from a mission perspective. It really encompasses our values and who we strive to be as, a, as an organization. So let's start there. I've passed your store many times. I did tell my youngest 18-year-old daughter that I was going to have you on. And she's like, oh, that's so cool. And I was hoping she'd say to me, oh, can you work an internship out for me? But instead, she's like, do you have a discount code? <laughs> like, You can't shop there. Not yet. You're not ready yet. So talk a little bit. I know you've been at the company for a while. You came in as a brand person. You ran brand. You succeeded as CEO just a few years ago. Talk a little bit about the founding, a little bit about the essence of the company. And I've got a bunch of other questions too about sustainability and your vision and your focus and your scale. Perfect. So Reformation was actually founded basically out of what our founder saw that was going wrong in the fashion industry. Like you alluded to that in your intro, fashion has a pretty bad reputation. And so our founder actually had a typical brand that was running you know, from 2005 to 2009, something like that. And through the experience, she learned a lot about where we were going wrong. So Reformation was really defined by how do we do this differently and how do we do it better than what is out there today? And so three big differences. First, typical apparel is quite slow, right? You think about how a t-shirt is made and most business people, like if you're at a typical retail brand, they have to decide how much of something, what color it should be and what should it look like 12 months out. And so you're really being asked to like read the future, which doesn't really seem like the best use of skills at this point. And so Reformation was predicated on going fast. The second piece was most brands actually have this like intermediary, like the wholesale partner who kind of decide what your brand should look like in, to the consumer. And Reformation doesn't do that. We're 93% direct to consumer. We really believe in owning that relationship with the customer. And then the last piece that you already alluded to is our founder, while she was working on other apparel businesses, she really had this moment of ownership and responsibility and accountability for the fact that apparel is one of the most polluting industries in the world, bar none. And so Reformation from day one has very different principles in terms of how we produce, which materials we use, and which business practices we lean on in order to make sure we have the lowest footprint we can. Because fundamentally, consumers are going to buy things. And so we can just provide an option that is equal in terms of aesthetic and quality, if not better, but also that 
really is much more thoughtful on how it's produced. And so the brand was started in New York with a couple really out of vintage. There were a couple of vintage stores and that the founder was actually taking a vintage dress and remaking it, tweaking it here and there. And that vintage aesthetic is really the heritage of Reformation today and still something we think about all the time of classic, timeless pieces that are inspired by you know decades of the past. I don't know if I read it on your website, but I think I read it somewhere, probably your website, that overall, globally, the fashion industry contributes to about 10% of all carbon emissions. Yep. yep, That's, that's a big number. That might even be bigger than cows. I'm not sure. It's probably close. But that's agriculture, a- so it's either two or three, oil and gas being one, and then agriculture being two or three, depending on how you define it. So you got it. Yeah. And are you the only fast fashion brand that actually creates limited editions every week to see how they play and then decide to then pursue a manufacturing path based on that type of interest and demand? Because I think that's really interesting. Again, I don't know much about the fashion industry. Clearly, nobody can see me. I'm just wearing a hoodie. But <laughs> You look great. Thank you. But I find that really interesting and actually very practical. You know, I don't know if we're the only, but I think we are very early on in it. I think more brands are trying to realize, like, you shouldn't have to sit on a ton of inventory, right? Like, that just leads to markdowns and waste in the system. And so what we do differently is we'll make small runs of things. If it goes well within the first day, you know if the customer likes it or not, and then you can really buy back into it. The problem is, if you have a really slow supply chain, you can't do that because you can't get back into things fast enough. Even if you know, you're a big business and your fast lane is four or five months, like that's not fast enough to really be responsive to consumer demand. And so the fact we have our own factory in Los Angeles, and you know, that really does help us, plus a lot of local production, we can get something on our sewing machines really quickly and not need to take all that risk up front in making garments, which may just wind up being sold at a discount. Like that's, That would be the opposite of sustainable. Right, right. And I read recently, I think it was a Fortune broadsheet article earlier this summer about how you're navigating or really kind of threading the needle between, you know, both millennials and Gen Z. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Because these are two very, and I know there's Gisennials or whatever they call them, but those are two very different generations who I think have a different kind of vibe and sense of how they want to look. How are you accomplishing that? Because that's not easy. The truth is we've never intended to. Like we never sit down and think about, you know, a lot of brands out there have like their customer segmentation that's super clear and this is who we're going for. We were never that prescriptive. Our thought was always, let's just make incredible product and let's talk to our customer like they're our friend. Just genuine, authentic communication. And I think people are really multifaceted. And so brands can be as well. And by being that complex and not always being kind of following into a a four-wall brand book, we've been able to attract a broader audience that kind of prescribes to our values and types of product. So you'll go to our site and you'll see something that is just like an oversized sweater, super basic. And then you'll see something that's really tight and trend forward and then just a basic pair of jeans. And that's how most people shop. Like I don't have one aesthetic. And I think by not limiting ourselves to like very clear confines of what we're supposed to do, we've been able to have a broader consumer appeal. And that's kind of where the the why behind kind of these multi-generations. I suspect you're being a little humble here because so your background's in brand, you ran brand prior to becoming CEO. 
And I know that you value data and you're a very data-driven company. So I'm assuming that some of the data is also driving your decisioning on how to message and how to engage with different consumer and different cohorts, right? Definitely. We, I mean, there's definitely data in everything we do. You know, my background's actually very analytical, more so than even brand. So 100%, we believe in numbers, we like to say. We love numbers. So that definitely informs the parts of where we're communicating, how we're communicating to the customer. But I think we do use our instinct and our gut a lot. Like when COVID first happened, I remember we went to Instagram and asked our customer, like it was like March, end of March, what do you want to hear? You know, everything right now is tough. Like tell us what you're looking for. And so like that authentic relationship actually really helped us develop a strategy that made sense for the time versus just kind of guessing. I think having a conversational approach like that is really interesting. And also, you don't feel like you're getting played or you're not getting a lot of like platitudinal marketing bullshit jargon just thrown at you, right? Customers are super smart, right? Like they can see through everything. And I think brands forget that. Like you build more loyalty if you are genuine. Yeah. So your background's in merchandising, right? Before this, you're clearly somewhat smart. You went to Duke undergrad and Stanford for your MBA. That was me being funny. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kind of curious. So your time at Stanford, I'm sure having an MBA helped somewhat. People always give me different answers on, on these types of questions in terms of to prepare you for the position that you're in now. A lot of it is instinct. A lot of it is experience and knowing the business. But How do you think your education also helped you manage and navigate where you are now? That's a really interesting question. So, but prior to Stanford, I was at Bain Consulting, which is kind of what gave me the toolkit for like thinking about a P&L and how to build a strategy and dissect a problem. I'd say consulting really gave me a lot of the foundational skills I needed from a, just a hard business perspective. When I went to business school, what I got was two things. One was exposure to some of the most incredible leaders I've ever met. And so like, I spent a lot of my time thinking about who do I want to emulate? And who do I want to be as a leader? Like, how do I define leadership? So that was incredibly valuable for me, just that ex- meeting so many unbelievable people and learning about them. And, and frankly, there's a lot of vulnerability in business school. So you'll hear about where people went wrong and what they learned from it. And then the second thing is I actually spent a lot of my time taking classes about like the EQ side of leadership. So how to have hard conversations. There's actually a class called Touchy Feely, which is unbelievably valuable where you sit in the room and talk about how you feel, but you learn a lot about your style and how you're perceived in a group. And so you can really tailor your style to be most effective and understand perception of other people. And so that was incredibly valuable for me in terms of just defining who I want to be and almost having like a a testing ground before I actually got to a more senior leadership position. Who did you want to emulate then? And who do you want to emulate now? I think the answer for me is there's so many incredible people out there. And so there's little pieces of everyone who I've met that I, I want to take. Like we have a professor named Irv Grosbeck, who unbelievably successful, built something unbelievable. And I'm, he, he taught me a ton about just like, authenticity and never ever like letting someone down like your word is your word and that actually is how you build that level of credibility will go pay dividends for you for years to come and then on the other side you see incredible leaders who are just creative thinkers and solve problems in ways that like you would never think is possible 
And so that's also a skill set that like I really aspire to do. And so I, I, like I remember coming on the business school, I had this like leadership journal, which really had all of these different moments and pieces together because there's so many amazing people out there that I hope to emulate and learn from every day. Well, you're in good company on the management consulting thing because I was listening to John Legend. Yep, I'm likening you to John Legend right now. <laughs> he, was, he was being viewed on Smartless, which I love the Smartless podcast. And he said he actually started off at BCG as a management consultant. That's and funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, they don't usually go that serious or ask that deep of questions on Smartless, hence the name of the, the podcast. But I think Will Arnett is like, well, how did that, or no, Jason Bateman's like, well, how did that prepare you? And he's like, well, I don't want to ever be in the business side of things, but it helped me figure out how to hire people and project manage and lead because I always want to be on the creative side. But I thought that was really interesting. I had no idea. He, like, he did that as his day job until you could basically meet Kanye and start touring with him. And then he took off from there. So it's actually pretty cool. So you are like the John Legend of fashion, basically. I mean, I will take that any day. He is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's a good one, actually. So I want to go back to your time at Reformation. So you were head of brand for a number of years, right? You were also merchandising. Yeah. Right. You became CEO in 2020. I think the beginning of the summer, 2020. It was an unplanned kind of executive, you know, succession. What lessons have you learned about, especially being someone on the inside, taking over a CEO, and especially during, you know, a challenging moment? Because all too often, you know, this is so much my background as well, especially in reputation management, not all too often focus, you know, people and stakeholders focus on the actual succession, but not on the person and the challenges. And I have to say, I'm just going to give you a shout out and some kudos. In the two years since you've become CEO, the scale and the margin and the mojo of the company has been fucking phenomenal, right? So there's got to be, if you look back on it now, and I'm sure you know we can spend hours talking about this, but for the folks who either have been through it or are going to go through something, because transitions, life is about change and transition. It's just the way it is. But you took it and you made something incredible of it. And not only did you do so on behalf of key stakeholders, but also your employees. And that's not easy, especially in this environment where employees are probably our most valued asset more so than ever before. And also there are not many of them left anymore because nobody wants to work. So long question, feel free to answer it however you choose. So I think what I learned from that experience is life isn't linear. It's not this like clear path and companies aren't either, right? Everything's asymmetrical. We are physically asymmetrical. Everything's asymmetrical. Completely. And so you build these like roadmaps for your company and you do your long range plan and you're like, this will happen, this will happen. But like, that's not real. And so in all companies, I believe this, there are pivot times or moments that are going to feel more difficult than others, big stair steps, big jumps. And so I think that was a moment for us. And what I think we did well in that moment was recognizing that this is a a real critical moment where we can change the course of where we're going, both from a business strategy standpoint, from a culture standpoint. What we've done to that point was great. Like, obviously, all companies do a lot well, and they do, they fall down sometimes. We certainly had a track record with genuine mistakes in it, but we also had done a lot well as well. And so it was a moment to reflect and say, like, what's going well? Where can we do things differently? And what, is, what does the next stage look like? 
And how does this feel meaningfully different? Like how do we actually make sure our team members actually feel like they are at a company that is different? And so the first thing I did in coming into the role was we rewrote the values of the company. And I think what it symbolized for myself and for the team was a step forward, a new way of thinking. Our values were written many years prior to that. They weren't necessarily reflective of the environment that we were operating in at that moment. And they didn't have the voice of so many people that were currently at the company. And so it was a very genuinely long process. We had lots of people's input, but I think it was a defining moment to say like, this is where we are going. This is how I define leadership at Reformation. Jump on board. Let's keep going here. We have something great. And it was a a hard time, but it was, I think, a really important time in in our history. The very, I don't even want to call it a gesture because gesture feels inauthentic, but it is a gesture, but the very act of reaching through the employee base from bottom up and asking them for input, that alone, I think, not only creates goodwill, but also signals a genuine interest in being different and changing culture. And I I give you a lot of credit for that because like you had alluded to, it's hard work. It doesn't just happen in a day. And you're probably, I don't know if you're like me, but like, I want to get shit done. Like I've got lists. I'm like super type A, a little hyper, a little ADD or ADHD. I can't remember what the last doctor said, but it takes some patience and some time and actually let it marinate a little bit. And you got some really good insights, right? Yeah, 100%. It took us several rounds. I think we had like 20 listening sessions, right? Where we talked to different team members. I remember there was one group of store managers who actually just went out on their own even at one point and sent me their thoughts. And then I, you know, I followed up with them, but people really bought into the process. So that when we kind of shared the final results, it felt like ours. And I think it's much easier to integrate it when it's from a process like that. But at the same time, like, I think we are still working on making sure we live these values every day. And there's times when I'm like, oh, like, did we do it the way we should have? Or how do we further like manifest this more into our everyday behaviors? Like just putting a sign on the wall that says, own it, right? Like, how do you actually manifest accountability in all of our behaviors so that we ultimately are on the same team? And I think that's the work where we're we're at now. Some days feel like we're further along and some days don't. Did you thread your value system through the review process as well when you're assessing performance? So we had it prior we had. And then when we were in like the transition time, we kind of went to a more generic version. And now we are redoing our review system, which will have it in there. But we, we have it both our review system, we actually just brought in like a third party to help us think through it and make sure it's really helpful. So we're doing it based on both values and kind of goal setting as well. So there's more tangibles. Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it because there's always a little bit of subjectivity involved, obviously. And I imagine that when you're going through the process of kind of value finding, it was probably pretty emotional. It was that class touchy-feely. I'm sure that there were some tears and that it, it, and I'm sure at some points it became uncomfortable. But I to quote my track coach. And for those eight listeners who are repeat listeners, they know he always said excellence and comfort can't coexist. So you have to be a little uncomfortable, right? A hundred percent. That's a good place to be at times. That quote reminds me of that movie Whiplash. Do you remember that? Yes. Like that was an extreme version, but... The drummer? Yeah. The drummer. Yeah. And it's definitely an extreme version, but I do think about like the idea of being uncomfortable and pushing yourself and things like that. 
And how could that actor from, I think it's Farmer's Insurance, be such a dick? <laughs> I love him. Like, <laughs> Awful. It was so hard to watch him in that experience. Like when you're like, wait, I, something feels wrong that like you're in this movie. And man, that guy's versatile. Jeez. <laughs> so you all have committed to being climate positive by 2025. I have in the past kind of questioned all that when companies say that because neutrality made sense, but now it's actually happening. And one of the things I really applaud you for, and this probably came out of you know your value sessions as well, is you're very transparent about the roadmap. I forgot what you call it, but you can see it. You can see the numbers. You're, you're very open about it on your website. How did you pick 2025? Are you nervous because it's just a few years away? <laughs> and how do you plan on getting there? I, I know it's a multifaceted, multifactorial kind of process and answer. We picked 2025 because it was a ground up kind of analysis of where we genuinely thought we could be. We put more pressure. I'd say if you like just let the analysis kind of drive you, it would have probably been 27. But we knew we had to act faster. And frankly, like the excessive heat wave that your daughter and myself are living through in LA right now is a really good reason of just we need more change faster than ever before. So we were carbon neutral since 2015. But we were increasingly becoming worried that it just wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough anymore. And so I remember having a really hard conversation with our head of sustainability, who definitely has a lot of emotional frustrations and concerns about just the world at large. And we said, like, how do we even play a bigger role? How do we move faster? And that's really where this came out, because it really is an overarching strategy that will drive incremental innovation and better behaviors across everything we do in a very holistic way. So we think about it both, a lot of it's from the material standpoint, a lot of it's from the energy consumption standpoint, and then transportation is also a big piece as well. And so if you want like this holistic strategy, we felt like a really ambitious goal would help us drive action across all the areas. And the reason we were public with that roadmap is because we want more brands to do it. It is not a, someone once asked us like, is sustainability your competitive advantage? Absolutely not. Our head of sustainability spends tons of time with other brands all the time trying to make them and help them have better practices, right? We need to do this all together. Reformation alone cannot solve this. And so the, the exposure and full kind of unveiling of that roadmap is hopefully just one way to help educate other brands on how they can move forward faster. So that, that's kind of the logic behind it. Do you think, generally speaking, that the fashion industry, like where would you rank, despite the fact that it's 10% contribution factor, right, to emissions, where would you rank at least the aspiration behind the overall fashion industry's desire to become more sustainable and adopt better practices, just generally speaking? One to 10, 10 being they're there, you know, that's the intent, that's the aspiration. I'd say aspirationally, it's probably like a six or seven. I genuinely believe leaders understand it and want to do well. I think where we fall down is it's incredibly challenging, especially when you're running a large organization that is rooted in principles that are not sustainable. So that kind of turn that around is really hard. And then you're also up against massive headwinds, whether it be a pandemic or massive inflation right now, supply chain problems. And so when you have to constantly make a choice between sustainability and running your business, 
I think that's when we fall down on the aspirations. But I do believe most leaders I speak to understand the imperative behind it. It's just much slower and harder than they would have anticipated and would have hoped for. Yeah. And I think smaller but high growth companies like Reformation, like Allbirds, like Nadam, like Savers, like Bull and Branch, like I've, I've had everybody you know on the show. I do think eventually it's going to push it in the right direction, right? I do worry about some of the bigger players and faking it, of course. That's in every industry. But I applaud you for doing that. I applaud the transparency as well. Question about B Corp. So I've had B Corp on. I've had lots of B Corp certified companies on. I've had companies like Deckers on, you know, famous for owning Hoka and UGG. And they're like, we're doing everything plus, plus, plus. Like, I don't have the time to go through this certification process. I applaud what they're doing. But like, just because we're not a B Corp doesn't mean that we're not doing everything right and then some. Kind of just curious how you feel about that and that movement. I think Deckers actually is a very similar example for us. We thought a lot about whether to be a B Corp multiple different times in the last you know, eight years. I've been with the company. We've talked about it. Ultimately, it would not drive a meaningful change in our behavior because we're already kind of on a certain path. And that's why we haven't dedicated the time and resource to it. I think it's a really good forcing mechanism to get other brands on board. And so therefore, you know, I think the intentions are really good. But for us, like every moment we have on our precious teams, that we have an incredible team, they're working super hard. And so we have to be really thoughtful about where we're we're putting our time and effort. And for us, it wouldn't have the, the greatest impact. I think in many ways, though, consumers do use it, especially from what I'm learning in Europe, consumers use it for like a branding kind of notion. And so that part is interesting and it's a signal to consumers of what you're doing well. I'd hope given the authentic commitment and actions we've taken to date, like we are already doing that. Right, yeah. I feel like we even thought about doing it a few times. I mean, the work stream on it is massive and you have to then weigh, you know, should I put that work stream and all those resources internally in audit to work in, you know, improving our supply chain or doing other things that will actually ironically kind of get you to what this, you know, and beyond what B Corp's aspirations are. So I totally get that. I just had to ask because I'm very curious whether or not it's going to burn itself out and your customers know who you are, right? They don't need a stamp of approval to say that you are as sustainable or as, you know, like-minded as a third party might say. Also the question about, so before you became CEO, I think right before, very shortly before you became CEO, you guys were bought out by private equity in Canada. They're actually UK-based. Oh, they're UK-based? Okay, I missed that. Maybe it was ex- helped originally to expand into Canada. Maybe that's what I read. And I'm starting to see a trend. I don't know, it's not a trend, but so many PE firms now are finally realizing that investing in companies that are both for profit and purpose and are sustainable. For them, obviously, there's a financial incentive, but that's okay because there's a circularity to it, right? And I'm starting to see that more. I'm going to assume that that's one of the reasons why they're so interested in reformation because they saw something really special that could scale. Yeah. And I'd say one of the reasons we were attracted to them in particular, we spoke to a lot of partners. The reason we were attracted to them was their genuine interest and commitment in ESG. And, you know, we weren't looking for a partner that was going to influence us or coerce us to make decisions that weren't long-term minded, that weren't aligned with our values. 
being sustainable can actually make you go slower in terms of your strategy. It can cost a lot, right? There's a massive financial impact to it. And we wanted to make sure we worked with a partner who is very mission aligned, value aligned with Reformation. And so Premira, our partners, are incredibly aligned with those values and that goal. And so that was really important to us. And you know, going back to a previous point you had made about just sustainability and what's going to drive leaders forward, I actually think the investment community may be one of the most important ways to drive sustainability forward. Like you even look at like what's going on with filings or some of these massive firms like the Black Rocks out there who are actually pushing more change than anyone. I think probably there's like a financial thesis somewhere that says like being sustainable, caring about the world, ultimately good for business, consumers will care. But genuinely, it feels like a lot of these investors are actually having way more of a conscious, they want to be agents for change. And that actually is a really positive story over the last couple of years, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like that coupled with universities and university endowments and their investment vehicles is the ultimate way to drive change, right? It has to come from that. 100%. Yeah. So listen, Hallie, you've been so generous with your time. I love what you're doing in the Reformation. I can't wait to continue to watch your success and, and see the brand grow, not just in, in eminence, but also its footprint. I think it's been phenomenal. The journey has been great. What is the best way for our listeners to follow your progress? I'm sure there's lots of social ways as well, but it's Instagram, is it TikTok? Like- it's probably Instagram if you want to see just kind of the fun, the levity of the brand. And then really from a, a roadmap, and mission standpoint, we release something called a sustainability report every quarter. So, you know, large public companies have their annual and quarterly reports. And so we have our equivalent, which really does say like, here's the work we did, here were our goals, and here is how we are marching towards those goals. And so those come through on email and Instagram every quarter. And, you know, I invite everyone to just to look through it and hold us to it. But you do that quarterly? Mm-hmm. That's a heavy lift. It's a big lift. That's no joke. Yeah. I don't think anybody appreciates. I mean, there's few of us who understand what that takes, both on the comm side and the op side. But that's that's pretty significant. That's incredible. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good way to make sure that we are doing the right thing. Because you don't want to get to a point at the end of the year and you're like, oh no, we fully like botched this, right? Like, it's a really helpful way to keep us on track. And frankly, like if we find something's not working, we can have an early, honest conversation about it and problem solve it. So I really appreciate the work the team does. But to your point, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate you're clearly a very powerful, very passionate and very vulnerable leader. And I think those are very important qualities among many others. I'm sure we just got to know each other. So I appreciate you and your leadership. And I can't wait to have you back on for part two. So thank you again. Me too. Thank you for the kind words and really grateful for your time and letting us tell our story to more people. Thanks, Hallie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.